I'd like to welcome you to the Trinity Term Strachey Lecture. The Strachey Lectures are the Distinguished Lecture Series from uh, the Department of Computer Science. Uh, we have a hashtag which is in front of me, hash ox lec. Um, please do tweet, but be nice about it if, you are, if you're going to tweet. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge our sponsors. Oxford Asset Management now for uh, a number of years have been sponsoring these lectures and it's been a transformative thing for us, enabling us to bring in speakers uh, and to put on a show that we simply wouldn't have been able to, uh, to do otherwise. So we're extremely grateful to Oxford Asset Management for their continuing support. Uh, I'm sure they would like me to point out that they are hiring. Uh, so if you Google Oxford Asset Management, you will, hire, you will find many job opportunities. But thank you to Oxford Asset Management. So now on to uh, our speaker, and I'm delighted to wel welcome Neil Lawrence. Uh, Neil is the inaugural DeepMind Professor of Machine Learning at the University of Cambridge, where he leads the university's flagship mission on AI, AI at CAM. He's been working on machine learning models for 20 years, and he recently returned to academia after three years of Director of Machine Learning at Amazon. His main interest is the interaction of machine learning with the physical world, and this interest was triggered by deploying machine learning solutions in the African context where end-to-end -end solutions are essential. And this has inspired new research directions at the interface of machine learning and systems research, uh, and that work is funded by a senior AI fellowship from the Alan Turing Institute. He's interim chair of the advisory board of the UK Centre for uh, Data Ethics and Innovation and a member of the UK's AI Council, which advises government on all matters AI. Uh, Neil is a visiting professor at the University of Sh for Sheffield, where he was for a number of years uh, an academic, and he is the co-host of Talking Machines. Uh, and the title of uh, Neil's uh, lecture could hardly be more contemporary. Use or be used regaining control of artificial intelligence. Neil, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Chef. That's working okay. And thank you for that wonderful introduction. And thank you, uh, Mike, Leslie, everyone for the invitation. Uh, and, and an apology, this invitation was originally for a year ago and uh, I, I caught COVID just before um, it was due to give the presentation. The title is actually the same. So imagine how much better the world would have been <laughs> had I been able to give this lecture a year ago. Like another, um, another consequence of the pandemic. Okay, so... Um, I try and use historical, I'm not going to give a technical talk really today, I'm just going to talk about issues that lead to technical questions. Um, and when I think about artificial intelligence, I like to sort of use these, there's uh, three apocryphal quotes that will be in the talk today. So the apocryphal quote about Henry Ford is when in, in, he, he says that if I'd asked people what they wanted out of a car, they would have asked for a faster horse. Um, and, and that provokes in my mind the question, so if you ask people what do they want out of artificial intelligence, is the answer a smarter human? Um, and then the question that follows is, is even what does that mean? I guess, by the way, if we'd had a faster horse, we'd already have autonomous vehicles, so that would have been a pretty cool thing, so maybe the customer's always right. Um, now, I talk about this a lot, and I'm only going to go through it very briefly, because I just want to contextualise uh, uh, the way I think about these things. Which is, when we look at humans and human intelligence, um, I've been trying to do public understanding of machine learning talks for about 10 years, and 
I wanted to capture why machine intelligence is so very different from human intelligence. And, and simply put, at one level, it's because I'm speaking to you using sound, um, and machines communicate using radio waves or light speed and cables. So they communicate about a million times faster. And this leads to all these sort of consequences. That for me to talk to you, if I'm talking in a good rate of speech, if we look at how much information I'm sharing, it's about 2,000 bits per minute. So that's uh, bits as defined by Shannon in information theory. That's the equivalent information as 2,000 coin tosses. So it's about telling you the result of 2,000 tennis matches where the odds were even every minute, um, which is pretty good. Now, but to do that, I'm sharing with you the thoughts are inside my head, and it's very hard to estimate how many calculations per second we're doing. But if you look at uh, the best estimates I could find for simulating a brain, you would need a, a machine about as fast as the Met Office's supercomputer down in Exeter, uh, which can do about uh, a billion, billion calculations per second. Um, now, if you compare that to a typical computer, and these slides actually date back a few years, so maybe they're a bit faster than this nowadays, a computer can communicate at 60 billion bits per minute if it's using gigabit per second internet. So that means if we turn that, let's turn that into salaries. So imagine your university studentship stipend is $2,000 a month. It's not great money, but it's kind of maybe enough to survive on. And then imagine your university stipend is $60 billion a month. It's actually closer to the budget of a country. So it's closer to what the UK spends on, on the whole of health and social security, $60 billion a month. So it's operating in terms of this information exchange much, much faster. But then our best estimates that a typical machine, in terms of the number of calculations it can do um, per second, uh, and I've done bits per minute calculations a second just to confuse things around. Um, it's about 100 billion calculations. So actually, a typical machine is doing a lot less compute per second than our brains. Of course, we can't access all that compute, neither can the computer access all the compute it does. But imagine if I wanted to share with you one second's worth of calculations from my head, if these numbers are right, it would take me a billion years to tell you all the calculations, five billion years, to tell you all the calculations that had occurred in my head in one second. So, oh wow, my battery is running low. This is interesting. I'm not sure it's referring to my brain or the uh, machine. That means I can see a plug that's not switched on, so I'm going to infer human learning, human intelligence. Um, so, Five billion years. Whereas a computer, if it were to just share one second's worth of computation, it would take it about 20 minutes. So this means your intelligence is locked in. So what I mean by locked in is you can hear all these stories, and, and I sometimes, in a longer version of this section, I would talk about a guy called Jean-Dominique Bobby, who was the French editor of Elle magazine, who was locked in, could only communicate by winking. They made a film about him. He wrote the book about that produced the film after he was locked in. And I think that's a state we all think about. We all think, oh, wow, what would it be like to be in that state? Well, that's the state you're in, right? You just evolve that way so you don't notice. But compared to the machine, that's where you're at. So in some sense, it's already a nonsense to talk about a more intelligent human being because the human being is defined by constraints, not by capabilities. We're defined in terms of our intelligence and the way we share information by our limited ability to communicate. And we've evolved in that state for hundreds of thousands of years as 
Homo sapiens, should say that in the Natural History Museum, and for you know millions of years as primates, etc., etc. And all animals do this to some, well, mammals, higher animals do this to some greater or lesser extent. So second apocryphal quote, the six-word novel, never written by Ernest Hemingway, but apocryphally written by Ernest Hemingway, for sale, baby shoes never worn. Now, so that's six words, 72 bits of information on average, 12 bits per word we have. But there's so much more meaning in those 12 words than 72 bits of information. And that's because you exist as humans who sit within a wider culture, a wider society, and you can imagine what it would feel to be the human that has to place that advert. So we use this information bandwidth in a way that allows us to lean on the fact that we are all human and we understand what it means to be a human, to communicate things that feel like there's a lot more than 72 bits of information in there, because we can all imagine what it felt like to write that advert. So although we're information bandwidth short, our context is very important, and we can extract a lot of information from very few provided pieces of information. So does anyone know who this apocryphal quote is apocryphally by? There are three types of lies, lies, damn lies, and statistics. It is Mark Twain, um, not apocryphally Mark Twain, because Mark Twain apocryphally credits it to Benjamin Disraeli. But it was said by um, Lord Balfour, the Foreign Secretary, crediting it to someone else at some point. But the point about this quote is that one of the reasons that we end up misunderstanding and misinterpreting statistics is because we're so information constrained that when we get little bits of information, we tend to overinterpret. We tend to see more behind that data than we have any right to. And that comes out in a bad way in statistics. It comes out in a good way when we're imagining what it felt for the person that had to write that advert. So I kind of, apocryphy, Benjamin Disraeli, um, I sort of think one of the, uh, the modern equivalent of this quote is this. There are three types of lies, lies, damn lies, and big data. Because what's happened in this modern data era, and that's being driven by the machine and its interconnection, is we're acquiring more and more information, more and more data, and we're basically forgetting the hard-earned lessons of a field known as mathematical statistics. So that quote from Disraeli predates the mathematical field of statistics, so quite close to the computer science, you have the Department of Statistics. They study mathematical statistics. They just don't say mathematical statistics. They study the, the, they study the process of understanding whether, whether you can believe what a statistics is purporting to say or not. And we don't even say mathematical statistics anymore, but it was a new field that had to come in to stop people misinterpreting statistics, which is the sort of science of state. So that's Carl Pearson. Of course, unfortunately associated with that field is a lot of fairly unpleasant things, uh, like eugenics. Most of the early um, mathematical statisticians were also involved in eugenics to one form or another, because they believed once you could tell this, we should be looking to improve the human species in some way. And that led to some quite problematic results. So but there's still an open question about what does mathematical data science look like in our era? And it's being triggered by this sort of new image because we now have an evolved relationship with information. So in the past, very, very far past, 100,000 years ago, we could go in the museum and check, but I think we would be in groups of about 30 to 50 operating together hunter-gatherers, maybe slightly larger, um, trusting each other, 
basing uh, sort of inferences about what's going on those relationships of trust and understanding who each of us is. Um, since then, we we, gained, we came into cities, we've you know, grown things, we've had to introduce laws to govern us, um, and we also ended up with statistics to look at how those cities are being managed, and we've had to teach ourselves not to misinterpret those statistics when making decisions. We've removed ourselves from that direct contact of person to person. And that's led to this evolved relationship with information. So in the part, well, 100 years ago, this was the situation that you had humans with this very low bandwidth connection. And a lot of what we were trying to do was manage that low bandwidth connection to ensure that we weren't misinterpreting the information we were receiving. But now what we've got is this. We've got an enormously high bandwidth connection between the machine and data, and then a low bandwidth connection between us and the machine. And this is leading to all sorts of problems. You know, and I, we, can, we can look back over the last 10 years in terms of election manipulation, in terms of social media, etc., etc., and what that's done. And you can put that down to the fact that the machine is now mediating what information it chooses to show us. I mean, it's actually using classical statistics to work out how to draw us in to our engagement with the machine. But it's not using classical statistics to say, how can I share the truth with this individual? It's using classical statistics to say, how can I cause this individual to engage with me? And of course, the answer turns out to be, share information with them that um, you know, fulfills their prejudices, that type of thing. Which is not great. So what we have is this as a challenge for data science, that we're trying to deal with this new high bandwidth connection to the machine, which is then presenting information to us in a low bandwidth way. And we've got classical statistics being the traditional way. Now, the first thing I want to emphasize is when you see this connection, you realize, well, Classical statistics has a massive role in, in mediating these new connections and understanding what's going wrong. But it's not everything that's there. There's an enormous role for computer science as well, um, you know, mathematics, just in understanding this, this new flow of information. But then the thing I think we need to also be talking about on top of that is this new wave of AI models, which are actually, I would argue, operating almost directly on that link between the human and the machine. So forming new ways for us to communicate with the machine. So in the past, what a statistician would do if they wanted to represent data is they would train the human to understand what a p-value is, or apparently misunderstand what a p-value is, um, or what an error bar is, or how to interpret a graph. And then the machine would share, you know, if you were using a machine, that information in the form of a graph and provide that information to the human. What we've got now is machines that will just talk to us. And when they talk to us, they are going right to the depths of that desire to overinterpret because they're feeding into our desire to anthropomorphize. And I can't say anthropomorphize very well. So I just say anthrox. So we all tend to treat complex things as if they are human in some form, whether it's our cat, or whether it's our car, or whether it's our computer. And when machines are starting to exhibit language, that tendency is going to increase even more. But the problem is that we mustn't forget this fundamental difference, that these intelligences are quite different from ours. They're quite alien to ours. Um, they can augment us, but the point in this talk is they can never replace us, and they should never be allowed to replace us. Because at the core of our intelligence is our limitations. 
And those are things that right from its birth, however capable the machine has, it will never have those limitations baked into it. Okay, so when I think about the scale of what we're experiencing now, I was, giving, I was convening the UK AI fellows, students, and postdocs at a hackathon, um, partially because I strongly believe that we are so dependent on that generation of people to deploy and use these technologies in the best way possible. Because it's not going to be the old people like myself who understand the ways in which these things can be deployed and used. We can see that in every previous revolution. It's young people. So I've tried to come up with analogies for how big I think this revolution is. And sometimes uh, I talk or write about the printing press and the sort of extraordinary effect that had 500 years ago leading to the Enlightenment, but also sort of 500 years of war around religion and all sorts of things going on in Europe. But then I kind of partially think that the printing press doesn't go far enough. So the revolution I think we're engaged in at the moment is arguably akin to the revolution of writing. So this is a sort of early cuneiform tablet that uh, if you go back to... Well, I started working with a colleague, uh, an Assyriologist in um, Cambridge, who worked on Nippur from 1500 BC to 1000 BC and reads these tablets with you know, court cases written down at this time that, as far as I can make out, the Greeks were some form of barbarians going around the Mediterranean attacking cities. Um, and at the same time, the city of Nippur has 2,000 years of written history going back to, you know, before Gilgamesh existed. So this is a society and a culture that existed sort of 3,000 years ago that had 2,000 years of written history written in the form of these sort of clay tablets. But then the thing I sort of think about is what was it like for the first person when, when the epic of Gilgamesh, which was an oral tradition, like presumably most of these traditions were, like the Odyssey and everything else, was suddenly written down for the first time and the sort of bard who's learned this whole epic and can sing it and do everything else turns up and says, no, that's all right, mate, I've got it written down now. Don't need you anymore. We don't need you to remember things because we can remember things on a piece of tablet. And the first form of usage for these tablets was not to write down poems. It was to write down accounts. So-and-so owes me three sheep. I owe them four lots of corn. And I think there's a tremendous parallel between that and the computer which so far has mainly been and somehow a tool of the accountants, Excel spreadsheets. It doesn't and can't interface with us in the poetic language we might like to use. And what it suddenly gained, I mean, it appears sudden, but it's not sudden. This has been going on for a number of years, but it's crossed the threshold into, oh yes, you can talk to the machine. And I think that this is really one particular reason why this is sending society into these sort of... Uh, spasms of excitement is, is related to an experience I had in 2017 where we were doing um, a Royal Society report on machine learning. So people were thinking about this you know, a long time ago and worrying about how technology would change things. And we were very focused at the time. This book was out by Richard and Daniel Suskin on the future of professions. It's a very good book, How Technology Will Transform the Work of Human Experts. And we were doing this work from 2015 to about 2017. And about midway through the work, when we were coming up with a lot of conclusions about how the lives of the middle classes were going to be affected by this revolution, we had a particular occurrence that really stuck with me. And that was the Brexit vote. And we were in the Royal Society about a week later, and we were sat around a table 
and we were sort of all digesting the consequences of this vote. And there were MPs from all parties, and there were policy experts, and there were domain experts. And one of the MPs said, well, I bet no one in this room voted for Brexit. And it suddenly occurred to me, I bet you're right, and isn't that the problem? Because the people who voted for Brexit are the ones who were disengaged from the decision-making. And that's why they voted for Brexit. And you can see that in populism wherever it exists. And that gave me a great fear, because this book speaks to the empowered. It speaks to all of us that are already engaged in decision-making. And that's also what you see going on now. Now, I'm not to say that allies aren't going to be transformed as educated people. But my experience is that educated people are amongst the best equipped to handle such change. And the model I have in my head is that of the coin pushing machine. So this is a coin push. I used to love these when I was a kid. I don't know if anyone knows what they are. <laughs> they used to have them at fairgrounds. You go to Brighton or Blackpool or whatever else. And you, you've got these two pennies and they go on these steps. And the steps move in and out. And you drop the coin and it, the coin sort of goes in at this end here. And then it lands and it should push these coins off. You can see these coins have just fallen. And then when the step pushes out, some coins will fall off and hopefully you'll win. Now, which coins fall off? Is it the coins that move? No, it's the coins on the edge. Because those people who are already on the edge of society, who are already challenged by things, are the ones that are going to be affected by this form of disruption. And my sense is, yes, those of us in the professions, those of us who are educated can do things, we'll, we'll have to learn, we'll be disrupted in a major way, but we actually have the intelligence and capability to do new jobs. It's the knock-on effects that it has on those people that have already given up their... I, I met a guy in um, uh, Lancaster once who used to... who decided not to go to university, wanted to be in a band. He, he went to catering college, did catering. He worked at the prison. The prison got shut. And then, of course, I met him because he was driving a taxi. Because that's where... If you ask any taxi driver why they're driving a taxi, you'll always get this sequence of stories about... you know, because anyone can sort of drive a taxi. But there are lots of peoples where there isn't much of demand for taxi. So when we did that report for the Royal Society back in 2017, it was called Machine Learning, the Power and Promise of Computers that Learn by Example. And I still think it's a really valid report that is actually still referenced today. But one of the things we did is we spoke to people and we asked them what they would like machine learning solutions to do. And so we did, a, it was a, I think, Ipsos Mori poll on public views of machine learning. So this is a qualitative research, which I think is going to be increasingly important in this domain. And our understanding of qualitative research, uh, even if you're a quantitative scientist, needs to improve dramatically. So these are the sort of things they said. I'm not sure if you can read, but these are the sort of areas we looked at. So we asked about health. And here they can see the greatest potential benefit to individuals and society. We asked about social care. So they saw the potential for resourcing issues, but they feared an overreliance machines reduced human involvement and emotional contact. Right? So that's clearly a worry and, and sort of thing, but they could see that there was benefit. Um, a best case scenario where machines would perform tasks that would enable human carers to spend more time with patients. I mean, that would be brilliant if that's what we'd done in any of our hospitals or social care. I don't think there's a very good record of that. Marketing. They even thought marketing was, you know, yeah, we could be used for tailoring marketing and that might not be a bad idea. Transport. Driverless cars could have benefits. These are just regular people. They were sort of in Birmingham in a sort of like small groups. Finance, university support of algorithms to monitor potentially fraudulent activity. People are really, really smart about what they want technology to do. 
Participants tend to think that machine learning in crime, to spot patterns in crime, was a good idea, but struggled to see how it might work accurately in practice. Wow, smart people. They saw it as a useful tool to aid the limited police resources, but concerned about the consequences of stereotyping individuals. People are smart. This is like at a time, by the way, when most people had not even heard what machine learning was. That was the first thing you had to do, was educate them what machine learning was. Public research, education. Participants are concerned that tailored education based on machine learning would result in de-skilling and limiting people to certain career paths at too young an age. Again, really, really smart. But they also sort of see benefits in that. What is the one area that all participants thought was ridiculous, that we should not be trying to do, that they could see no point in it whatsoever? Art. They failed to see the purpose of machine learning and uh, written poetry. For all other case studies, participants recognised that a machine might be able to do a better job than a human. However, they did not think this would be the case when creating art, as doing so was considered to be a fundamental human activity that machines could only mimic at best. Where have we made the greatest progress in machine learning in the ensuing six years? In mimicking what humans do. So in honour of that, I asked ChatGPT to write a soliloquy that introduces a large language model as spoken by Mercutio. Mercutio. This was ChatGPT 4. ChatGPT 3.5 didn't do quite as good a job. Um, but yes, um, I don't know who Puck is. Did anyone know who Puck is? Uh, as if woven by. Is Puck an appropriate person to create large language models? It's a different play, but yeah. it's from the Right. But it's a crossover play. It's the one where they're creating large language models and. There's Romeo and, you know, it's in nowadays, you know, you've got Better Call Saul, all sorts going on. The characters appear in other things. <laughs> Digital Athenaeum, my goodness. Um, but what does that fundamentally mean? So I want to sort of say, does anyone recognise what this map is of? You're nodding, what, what's the map of? Uh, Western Europe. Yeah, yeah and, and can you guess what year it is and what the circumstances of the map are? World War II, that's right, and can you guess the date? <laughs> There's only a few significant dates in World War II. But again? June 44. June 44, yes, June the 5th, 1944. And, and, and can you guess who, who's, whose map it is? Um, it's probably a German map. It's a German map of their weather stations. Yeah, so it's their pressure in their different weather stations. And, and actually, not that clear, they, they've drawn the isobars. So what was going on in June 44 was that there was a storm in the channel. What was also going on was that the tides were at the right level for an invasion of Europe to occur. What was difficult for the Germans is that the weather comes from the west. And their weather stations were on France. Does anyone know where Rommel was on the day of the invasion? At his wife's 50th birthday party in Germany. Because he got the weather report and said, well, there's no way there'll be an invasion tomorrow, so I can go home to my wife's birthday party and everything will be fine. Of course, he was kind of rudely awoken the next day and had to drive rapidly back to the front. Now, if we look on the alternative map, this is the Allies' view of the weather on that day. And the Allies actually understand where the front is and they understand that there's going to be a gap in the weather. There's actually multiple weather reports that are in conflict and there's even controversy today over who agreed that there was going to be a significant gap in the weather. But the interesting thing about weather forecasting in both these cases is it was being done by interpolation. So you had a number of weather stations spaced across 
Britain. I mean, actually, and it's interesting, they don't seem to be marked here. I'm, I'm not sure what's going on, but we should have had weather information from France because of Enigma uh, decrypts. But whether they would put it on the map or not. So we could actually interpolate across the channel when we did our weather reports. Whereas the Germans, I don't think could. They have some weather information on that previous map, I think in Cornwall. So I'm not sure how they're getting it. I don't know what the Cornish are doing. <laughs> um, but basically, you're having to interpolate. But for Britain, you're interpolating in the right direction because the weather's moving in the right way. Um, a modern weather forecast is, of course, do it, done using Navier-Stokes equation on that big computer down in Exeter. And they use Navier-Stokes equation. That allows them to extrapolate. And that extrapolation is sort of key in giving us these long-term predictions out to five or six days. Because we understand the physics of the weather. We're not just looking at what the pressure is and sort of having a stab at where it might move um, through some minimal sort of extrapolation over time. So that's why the Germans got the weather wrong. Now, what's that got to do with chat GPT? Well, fundamentally, all it's doing is interpolating. It doesn't have access. It's in this position. It doesn't have access to the future where humans are given this tool and they start to work with this tool and they start doing what they will do with that. Why does that come about? Well, the enormous quantity of data we fed these machines is basically, at the primary level, it's giving a feature space in which interpolation works. And all these capabilities, like logical reasoning and stuff, are emergent because that feature space is emergent by just looking at enormous quantities of our data. But like at the final layer of this thing, it's still having to interpolate. It can't build that feature space and extrapolate in such a way that says, how, will, how would Mercutio actually react? You know, what would they do, first of all, with GPT? It could say something, but we'll only know what Mercutio would do when the modern Mercutios get given the tool. And so at this very key point, given that humans, whatever their limitations, are coming at this problem from a particular perspective, you can never replace them, because as soon as you augment them with the tool, they are something that is far greater than either themselves or the tool on its own. Just like we became far greater than ourselves by writing things in clay tablets. You know, for a large amount of time, that was how we shared knowledge and built upon knowledge and understood geometry and all sorts of other things. So those models are only interpolated. Now, this is something I used to talk about a lot. And I sort of now question what I would have said about this a little bit. Because when people talk about artificial intelligence, a question occurred to me is, what do they mean? Because different people mean different things. I was at the Natural History Museum in London, talking uh, with some of the scientists there the other week. And on my way in, I got chatting to the security guard. And I always like to ask people, what do you think AI is? And it's quite hard to understand a common thing that's behind this, because intelligence is such an emotive word. So they sort of think it's like them. It's like, well, it can't be quite like you. But I do think one distinctive thing that this technology might and could do is be the first technology that, when it automates, tries to adapt to who we are. Or I think that's what it purports to do, right? So all previous generations of automation, if you invented a weaving loom or if you invented a spinning jenny, it required everyone to turn up at the factory and service the machine. So Samuel Butler writes about this in the 19th century, the way in which these forms of automation actually enslave us to the machine because we're adaptable and the machine isn't. So if you look at railways, you know, you all have to turn up on time at the station. We didn't even have universal time across the United Kingdom until they had railways. So 
every previous generation of automation requires us as flexible entities to adapt to the machine. And I think what people expect that they're getting from AI is an entity that will adapt to them. I think it's a fallacy, but maybe I'm wrong, and maybe what we're seeing now is when you have machines that can understand the whole of human history and culture, they can mimic adaptation to us. Certainly it will feel a bit more. I don't know if we'll truly feel that in two, three years' time, but I think people are feeling that today, that I can have a conversation with a machine about my software that feels like it is adapting to who I am um, and what I'd like. But when it comes to then applying that in critical decision-making, so a lot of what we care about in society is what one might think of as consequential decisions being made by people about us and who we are. I think there's kind of a problem with this point of view. Because the thing I sort of started noticing, and I think it's also written about, I'm not the first to notice it, and people use different words for it, that everyone in machine learning talks about, we want decisions that are fair. But when they say that we want fair decisions, I've noticed that people mean a couple of different things. And in fact, it was Carl Rasmussen that pointed this out to me when I went out for a run once. Because I was talking about the complexity of a fair decision and how difficult it is. If I'm going to make a nuanced decision about some individuals in front of me from different backgrounds who all appear qualified to enter the University of Cambridge, and I'm taking into account all their different backgrounds, what they've done up until now, etc., etc., because they can all manage the degree, I'm using an immense amount of my understanding of these individuals as a human being and trying to find out about who they are. And it seems fair that I should do that because I'm taking into account these individuals' experience of life and, and the struggles they've had to get through to get there. But there's another form of fairness that says, no, the rules should be clear. No, basically, you should have to get these grades and then you should be accepted into university. And the same thing applies for any consequential decision-making, like giving loans or um, you know, uh, court cases. And this is now reflected in the General Data Protection Regulation which says that there are certain protected characteristics and you should not ever decide about someone on the basis of those characteristics. But what I find interesting about this is, it's almost like this is political, I'll leave you to decide which side, which politi politics is errs on which side. To me, both of these extremes are dystopians. The extreme where all you're doing is considering everyone's history and, and oh, if only they'd be given the chances, and giving everyone the same opportunity is one dystopia. And the extreme where you say, no, this is the fixed rule, and only if you pass this rule do you get to have the beneficial outcome, or the negative outcome, is another dystopia. And in practice, we're always operating somewhere between. And it was struggling, I was struggling to think about this, because it's really important. How can you have something that is procedurally fair and simultaneously nuanced and substantively fair? Because to something to be procedurally fair, we all have to understand. Like, I don't think the tax code is fair, because no one understands the tax code. So if you pay someone a large amount of money, they can find a hole in the tax code, and you can pay less tax. So that's not procedurally fair, even though it's a process, right? And it's not procedurally fair because it's difficult to understand. So for something to be procedurally fair, it has to be clear to everyone. But simultaneously, if we're going to take into account all these nuances, how can we have something that is taking into account nuances and also be simple? Well, the answer goes back to that word anthrox. If you gather a group of people together, if you convene them really well and teach them how to make decisions, you can have a decision-making process that is simultaneously nuanced and procedurally fair. 
Because you can have people, I mean, the most complex things in this room are the other people in this room. But we all think we have a deep and intuitive understanding of those people. I mean, and we do actually, because we co-evolve together, right? So that goes right to the heart of who we are as humans. So I call this the marvelous resolution between these two extremes. That the only way you can bridge these two is to have a procedure where you've got well-trained human beings, and of course, very often, we're not well-trained, we're biased or whatever. But if you train those humans well about good decision-making, and then you also have a procedure that sort of says, yeah, we're going to have to get these marks, and then you'll be before a committee, and then that committee will make the final decision. Everyone says, sure, that sounds fine. If you say the alternative and say, and then a machine looks at your entire history and does really complicated calculations about what's going on, that, that's very hard for people to understand. That's an odd procedure, because it's a procedure, but one that we don't feel intuition about, unless we're assuming that machine is operating like a human. So for me, this says that for consequential decision-making, in order to have decisions that can balance between these two forms of fairness, we must always have humans in the loop. But what does that mean? Because we know machines can be a great help in these type of decisions. Okay, so I kind of think that the other side to that, and I love these lectures, I listened to them uh, recently. These are the best lectures on AI you'll ever hear. And they're from 2002, and they're not on AI. Because what Honora O'Neill is talking about is a question of trust. And she's talking about a world where everything has become more procedural, and we're calling everything to account through processes. And she's talking about the way that erodes our professional faith in individuals who are paid to make good decisions. Now, there are clearly things, you know, we, we all know about professional individuals who have made corrupted decisions, they're in the papers all the time. But what O'Neill is saying is that by increasing accountability in terms of scoring them and marking them and making measures, you're actually eroding their professional duty. And what she talks about a lot is that all rights come with duties and that you can't have rights with duties. And what you will increasingly hear, certainly if you hear, listen to her lectures again, is, is that that's kind of the way that people talk about things. Like certainly even in academic politics, I very often don't hear my colleagues talking about what their duties are towards their students, but I often hear them talking about what their rights are around their intellectual property. Um, and it would be good if they were focusing a bit more on what their duties are. And the point O'Neill is making is you can't have rights without duties. Now, a machine can't have duties because the machine itself does not participate in this society. It can't be trusted in the same way. That's the point Honora O'Neill makes, and it's a very strong point that sticks with me because the first time she made that point was when I was interviewing her for the Royal Society report, and I asked her if we could trust a machine, and uh, she told me very specifically we couldn't. <laughs> Listening to her ideas on why that isn't the case is really about this sort of same thing, that you need humans with a human understanding of what professional duty is to be in the loop around this decision-making. So what does that look like? So actually, she even had a quote that, that relates to this example that I was using before I even uh, listened to the lectures. So again, universities are asked to treat applicants fairly on the basis of ability and promise, but they are supposed to also admit a socially more representative intake. There's no guarantee that the process meets the target. And I mean, she doesn't say this. What I'm trying to say is that the only way you can do that is if you have trusted individuals who are balancing those things as part of that process. And the only way you can trust those individuals is if they're well-trained and well-convened, etc., etc., and they're held to account by their position in society. You can't trust a machine to do that because it doesn't have a position in society. So what does this mean for in terms of what we're doing with artificial intelligence today? Well, I kind of think 
As a result, artificial intelligence can only ever be seen as a tool. And if anyone is telling you it's a replacement for us, I think that's a ridiculous notion. That always has to be a ridiculous notion. Apart from the following, what does it mean for it to be a tool? And the analogy I want to sort of talk about is uh, the National Advisory Committee on Aeronautics in uh, Langley Field, who participated in the Second World War and before that in testing aircraft. And when they were testing aircraft, one of the things they did, a guy called Bob Gilruth wrote, is the handbook on how an aircraft should handle. So what he did, and these are the group of test pilots they had, one of them was called Stefan Cavallo, I don't know which one, but I read a lot about Stefan Cavallo, and I think this is a P-47. When they got a new plane, they went up and flew these planes, and they moved the stick around and the plane did things. And pilots would say, flies like a butte, flies like a brick, whatever. But they didn't know what that meant in terms of how they should change the plane to fly better. So what Bob Gilruth did is he wrote a paper that you can go and read, it's online somewhere, that talks about how a plane should respond when you put 10 pounds of pressure on the stick. Right? So if you put 10 pounds of pressure on the stick left and it's a fighter, it should roll at a certain rate. If you put 10 pounds of stick pressure on the stick and it's a bomber, it should roll at a slower rate. As you're approaching a stall, the stick should judder on the run into the stall to warn the pilot. He quantified all of this. Right? So when these pilots were flying planes, they could feel the plane and the plane was communicating in a way that was well understood. Now, that control of a stick, well, the other thing about uh, the National Advisory Commission on Aeronautics, it became a founding group of NASA. And the people that did this work also designed the crude capsules, the Mercury capsule, the Gemini AI capsule, and the Apollo capsule, that actually indulged in providing that feedback to pilots and the control to pilots on entities that were entirely controlled by computers. So the Apollo guidance computer was the thing that was firing the thrusters, but Neil Armstrong is moving the stick. So in that case, you've got this really interesting situation where Neil Armstrong is not in control because the computer's in control, but Neil Armstrong feels like he's in control. And that's the kind of balance we're looking for because for the things that Neil Armstrong cares about, he is in control. And the same is true for the pilot of an A380 today. When they move that stick, the plane that's going into a computer, and the computer is deciding what to do, and sometimes the computer overrules the pilot. It's also true for a fighter pilots today, where fighter pilots would not be capable of flying that machine without the computer's assistance. So the notion of control you're looking for is something that's akin to this, where you want the intent of the human being to be understood and projected and enhanced by the machine, but the machine itself is doing things that are beyond the capability of any given human. Now this is incredibly difficult, and I find this sort of really ironic, that the control stick was first developed by the Wright brothers in 1904 or whenever they flew for their flyer, um, and it just went forward and backwards because they could only go up and down. And within 36 years, we characterized that interface. The interface we're now all faced with now is one of, let's just talk to our machines, and our ability to characterize that interface between the computer and the human is minimal. Like in terms of how we can be manipulated or how we should present uncertain information or how we share an understanding of a patient with a machine or how it should share it back is minimal. We don't have the equivalent of 10 pounds to the left should lead to this. And we urgently need to get on top of that. Because so far, we've been manipulated in fairly simplistic ways. Like, oh, here's a like button, or here's an image you'll like, you'll click on this, or 
here's a question about you'll never believe what so-and-so looked like now when you knew them in the 1980s. Apparently you all click on that. Um, <laughs> that's simplistic, but now there's all sorts of opportunities for machines to interact with us in this highly complex way that we haven't quantified. So I kind of think that the main thing that we need is the equivalent of AI proving grounds, where when we're looking at these models, we can understand how they are being deployed in practice. So understand the nature of the tool, what's its potential, what its pitfalls, and that's the way we can build societal AI capability. There are going to be loads of disruptions, but there's loads of things we need to do and loads of ways we can be empowered. So the question is, how do we get this understanding as widespread as possible? And as was said in the introduction, one of the things that has been an enormous inspiration for me is working on deploying data science solutions in Africa. So data science Africa is a bottom-up initiative for capacity building, data science, machine learning, and AI on the African continent. And what I love about it is you're always trying to deploy end-to-end -end solutions. So you don't sit in an office and imagine what a farmer might want or a clinician might want. You actually go out to the health centre or the field. And you don't imagine what the Ministry of Health might want or the Ministry of Agriculture might want. You actually go and talk to the Ministry of Agriculture. And you find most of the things that we think about machine learning are utterly irrelevant. And that most of the challenges that people are genuinely experiencing are not being properly researched. Because they're all at the interfaces with people. So the thing we need to urgently do is to get on top of working with those people. So there's an article on this, it's uh, 2015 when we first set the thing up, which, which sort of talks about how, uh, uh, it's in the Guardian, you can find the links on it. If you search for Neil Lawrence talks, you'll find all these notes and everything. Another aspect of this is how do people maintain power? How do people maintain control over this system in a societal way? Well, actually, all this information is coming from us as individuals. It's our collectivized data that is being put into these machines. And we have rights over that data, whether they're intellectual property rights or whether they're coming from the General Data Protection Regulation. But one challenge is that there's an asymmetry of power. So if I want to call up Google and say, can you stop doing this with my data, they're not going to answer my call. So the notion of a data trust, and there's a whole family of data intermediaries now, is an entity which collectivizes people's data rights and operates on this ecosystem to say, well, basically, you can't do that with these models because we want you to delete our data if you're going to do that. So there's a large number of work that's been going on. We've got, um, uh, in this area, we've got uh, uh, 18 months of data trust initiative, 200 experts, some, seven research projects, and exciting three real-world data trusts we're funding as pilots. One, which is a um, uh, sort of local data trust for people around Brixham and Devonshire, and two of which are associated with medical data. One with people who opted out of the general practitioner's uh, recent data sharing scheme, and another one for the Born in Scotland uh, cohort study, which is just starting now. The other thing I think is vitally important, and uh, this is a funding, we also have Schmidt funding here, uh, from Schmidt Futures for a project we've been running for sort of four years now, is the Accelerate Programme for Scientific Discovery where the main focus is to go out to data science, to go out to scientific domain experts and talk to them about their scientific problems and try and work out what the solutions they need from a machine learning perspective are. Because only by understanding the problems they face, this is entirely inspired by the talk to the farmer in the field approach that, that DSA has to take, Data Science Africa, um, but working with scientists, and we go beyond science to engineering and humanities. We've got a project, as I said, with my seriologist friend, um, to try and understand what is it they're looking, how, how would they like their lives to be better? 
Rather than building a neural network and imposing it on people, talking to people about, well, what are the problems you're facing? And it's exactly inspired by the fact that nurses aren't getting to spend more time with patients through computers. They're getting to spend more time with computers. And the reason is because that computer solution is imposed from the centre rather than by talking to the nurse about what they need. And these new capabilities, in terms of our ability to code and communicate with machines, offer an opportunity to turn that around. And this stuff about there won't be any jobs, there's a lot of jobs doing that. We have utterly failed to deliver on this for like the last eight years, as we've just seen from what people asked for from the Royal Society report. Of course jobs will be different, and of course it will be disrupted. So the final thing is that we're trying to sort of bring that together with the AI at CAM flagship mission. And if you read, and do feel free, we published this report before we got the uh, mission approved, because um, the thing I hate about grant proposals is when they've rejected it and you don't get to do anything with your proposal. So I, I said, well, well, we're going to write a report first, publish it, and then you can decide whether to fund it or not. Part of the reason for that is because, rightly or wrongly, people look to institutions like Cambridge and Oxford to provide leadership. So this report brought together a number of these strands of thinking, communicated across the university with what people expect to see from AI, and you know, we hope other people will copy it, because what it tries to do is start from what the societal challenges are, admit that Cambridge is not positioned to solve all societal challenges, but it's positioned to be a partner in helping people solve those challenges, and try and get people to think about how we contribute in that way. Because it's up to leading institutions like Oxford and Cambridge, and Imperial and UCL and Sheffield and Manchester to really stop all those coins falling off the side of the uh, step. Um, so progress so far on that is just convening, and uh, oh, I love it, just, what's so cool about this is when it's small amounts of funding if you're funding the right people, it tends to be young people in an interdisciplinary way, you can just see beautiful things happen. <laughs> we had this whole meeting where we just funded these groups to the tune of £10,000, and I was thinking, yeah, that's about the cost of a business class flight. Um, and yet some of these groups had produced like workshops, working papers, discussions that were just thinking in ways that only young people can. The old people who've been stuck in this area for too long are just not seeing the possibilities. And so it's really vital we start funding uh, at that level. And with that, I'll just say thanks. I don't have any conclusions other than there's an enormous amount of work to do, but we're going to do it together. And if we do it together well, I think we can lead to a society that is much better for everyone, not just the professionals, but also all those people uh, on the edge. Thank you very much. <laughs>